I'm Trudy Kerr and welcome to The Interviewer. In this series, I talk to artists, campaigners, men and women of influence, musicians, performers, sportsmen and women, politicians, businessmen and women and anyone who shapes the fabric of our society. Darren Zamit Lupi is a professional photographer, an award-winning photographer, a published photographer. Darren started his career as a photographer in 1992 with the Malta Independent. Darren went on to study a master's at the University of Arts in London and turned freelance, working for both local press, The Times, and international press, Reuters. He has had two books published, the first of which, Islanders, documents the migration situation in Malta. And Darren has documented hard-hitting global disasters and issues, but most recently has won the Yanis Behrakis International Photojournalism Award for the photographic documentation of his daughter Rebecca's journey, affected by a rare and extremely aggressive form of bone cancer, and her death on the 3rd of January this year. Darren's so much to talk about, but thank you for being here on The Interviewer. I've been looking forward to this for a very long time. You're welcome. Hi. So listen, as I said, when I researched you, I was surprised at the questions that fired off in my brain. But I want to start with the cover image on your website. The image that the site opens out with is a hand reaching from the water. A migrant is clearly in distress. Behind him, another migrant is swimming to help this person who appears to have slipped through their life jacket. And I've been completely haunted by this image. Can you tell me the story behind it? What happened to the migrant afterwards? How did you get to be there in the first place? That was 2017. It was Easter weekend. Uh, It was actually Good Friday that I took that photograph, I remember. Um, I spend a lot of time on migrant search and rescue ships documenting what is happening out at sea, as well as what happens here in Malta. On that particular mission with MOAS, which is a like Malta-based organization, we'd been at sea for a couple of weeks. We had several rescues that day. Um, the sea was very calm, about I don't know, 15 miles off the Libyan coast. And this was a routine sort of textbook rescue operation. Calm waters, no panic, no, no, nothing whatsoever. But the rubber dinghy they were on was so overpacked that uh, many of them were sitting on the ri- outer rim of the rubber boat. And uh, we handed out life jackets to them. And then sort of one guy slipped and like, like a kind of domino effect, you know, one guy goes in and everybody else follows. So within seconds, we had several people in the water. Most of them had just put the life vests, slipped them over their necks. They hadn't actually secured them. And uh, this particular guy just immediately slid out and started going down. Luckily, we noticed. And I was looking at, I was watching it all through the viewfinder of my camera. And I saw what was happening in front of me. And I yelled out to one of my colleagues on on the rescue boat, who was a rescue swimmer. And he instantly jumped into the into the water to to pull this guy out because you know, they had been sort of taken out by pulling other guys out of the water i was also helping to pull guys out of the water whilst taking pictures at the same time it's all it all happened so fast sometimes hard to kind of actually remember the direct sequence of events but luckily that guy survived um, everybody who did they were just shocked and wet but they were fine um, and this was good friday of 2017 
Now, to carry on with that story, two days later, Easter Sunday, it was a very different story. I think it was one of the hardest rescues I've ever seen and uh, very emotionally powerful because uh, we had a lot of dead people. You know, to this day, I remember sort of helping to sort of, you know, lift this, uh, you know, dead woman onto the boat and she was lying dead at my feet, you know, covering her face myself with a, with a shemag, which we recovered from the sinking boat as well. And it was very, very distressing because, you know, there was a kid who drowned as well. We ourselves recovered, if I recall correctly, seven bodies. But we know there were many others of people who died because we saw the bodies floating away and we couldn't uh, retrieve them. Was your role as part of this operation was to document it or to assist? My role is to document it. I am not a trained rescuer. I'm certainly not a trained rescue swimmer. I remember when that picture was published... it was uh, published you know, quite soon afterwards, um, online and so on. We got a lot of flack from sort of many people, sort of trolls and social media so saying, you know, why did I take that photo? Why didn't I jump in to save that guy and all this sort of stuff? Obviously, you don't, you don't sort of interact with these people on social media. You leave it to, up to other people to sort of explain to them what might have happened. And even telling them to read the freaking caption because it actually says the whole story. In this case, I know that, first of all, the guy was out of reach when he stretched Mm. his hand out to me. It's something which happens in a split second. And I also know that if I were to jump into the sea to rescue this guy, not only would he drown, but other people would drown as well. Because if I jumped in, my life jacket would have inflated automatically. So I would have become a floating teletubby in the water. And my colleagues who were busy fishing other people out of the sea would have turned their attention to me. You know, other people would have gone down. But, yeah, I was haunted by it. You said you were haunted by it. Yeah. I was haunted by it. I, well, I have Certainly. no doubt. I mean, I, I've recently spoken to René Rosignol, and I asked him the same question I'm going to ask you because you have spent your time documenting this as well as the tsunami, as well as other war-stricken and yeah. conflict issues. And you just mentioned that you're haunted by that. And I asked the same question to René. How, how long does it take to get over seeing something like that? Because when I saw that on your website, I was immediately impacted and understood the value of your role. You brought that image to me and I am affected by what you have shown to me. But you obviously saw this firsthand. So how long does it take to get over some of the things that you've seen? There's no simple answer to that. Sometimes uh, you kind of get flashback images like months or even of years later. It's really hard to say. I mean, in this particular case, I think I got over it. I got over the shock of it quite quickly because uh, we, we were very sort of contained and supportive crew so there was a lot of uh, talking through what happened there was nothing like you know approaching PTSD for example in, in this particular case I don't think anybody went through that even when it came to uh, to handling sort of the people who had drowned and later on in the mission people who had been shot and killed by the smugglers and we had to take their their bodies on board it's a bit of a cliche but the camera does protect you when you see it through the viewfinder it is a protected barrier what I found affected me most in this on this particular mission was, as I said, when we were bringing the dead people on board. I could almost mime it for you, but then, the, you know, listeners wouldn't know what I'm on about. But I remember when this dead woman at, at my feet um, in her 20s, uh, later it, they told me she was pregnant. 
And our rescue swimmer, Paul, sort of, who was in the sinking dinghy, sort of, you know, threw me this shemag to cover her face. And I sort of, you know, I put my cameras down and sort of leaned over her to cover her face. Her eyes were closed. In my mind, the last thing she was seeing was me leaning down over her to cover her face. I think that was the really, really haunting thing, rather than seeing, you know, these people struggling not to drown, because those people survived. Now, the picture is very dramatic of the guy sticking his arm out, but it's actually a happy ending because they all survived. Mm. Darren, I want to stick with this migrant situation for a few moments longer. In a recent feature in The Love in Malta, uh, there was a a video showing a man being beaten up in Bujiba very badly by three other men. And a large portion of the comments in the feed immediately assumed that these people were African immigrants and fairly racist and xenophobic responses to what was happening. However, your account of the immigration situation in the book Irelanders and on your website points to a very, very different picture. And I don't think we understand exactly why immigrants take that risk of possible death to cross the Mediterranean Sea to come to us. So what do you see is the truth of this situation? What did you learn through that process and what were you trying to communicate through your book it's pretty clear to me and to anyone with a half a brain cell that uh, these people wouldn't undertake this journey if they weren't really really desperate if they weren't fleeing something truly horrific but it's also become clear to me that once people sort of have a racist or xenophobic mindset they're just going to see everything filtered through that. So there's nothing you can tell them, nothing you can show them, which is going to change their minds. Um, They will always say that there are women and children that are being placed on the rubber boats purposely to try to kind of elicit our sympathy. They talk about why are these, why are all these sort of young men sort of getting on the boats? If there are problems back home, why don't they stay home and fight? And it's always the same old sort of tired argument being repeated over and over again. And no matter how often you to try to explain the truth of the situation, even showing what is happening in their home countries and so on, it's like talking to a, it's like flogging a dead, dead horse. But so if that's the case, what is your role as a photographer and what makes a good photographer? Because you're the kind of photographer from the work that I've seen of yours that it comes home with those messages, comes home with that powerful yeah. deliverance. Is that what you are trying to do to change perception? I know. I think the most imp- important role of the photojournalist, and here I'm going to quote a late friend of mine, Yanis Beharakis. We mentioned the award I won, which was set up in his memory because he died a couple of years ago. Yanis said something really, really sort of perfectly to the point. And he said, if you've seen my pictures, you cannot pretend you didn't know. And, you know, you can say the same thing about the photos of the Holocaust, any, any situation. The photos are there. They are proof that this happened, this is happening. You can't pretend, I didn't know about it. I didn't know it was that bad or whatever. You know, that is not a valid excuse anymore, whether you're... Uh, a common man in the street, whether you're head of state, a politician, whatever, there's no excuse for saying we didn't know just how bad things were. And that, I think, is the real true role of the photojournalist. Apart from the works that you recently won an International Photojournalism Award for, which we're going to come to in just a minute, what are the images that you are most proud of, aside from those? 
I like to say my favorite picture is the one I haven't taken yet. I don't know. Probably my most famous photograph and probably most, uh, most widely published photo is a very light-hearted uh, picture of the Jostra, you know, the slippery pole thing that they do sort of in summer during the f- With uh, the rather ya- large With gentleman. Rather, yes, exactly. <laughs> Which is on your website for anybody that's listening. Go and see it. It's a brilliant yeah, picture. Yeah, I mean, it, w- it was... Um, it really went viral. I mean, it was published absolutely everywhere. You know, and all the major news websites around the world, like newspapers, television. I remember watching Have I Got News For You once on BBC and the photo cropped up over there. And, you know, social media, the number of memes based on it, on Reddit and so on, was just insane. It really, really went viral. So, yeah, that's probably the picture I'm sort of, uh, probably the best known picture, which I guess it's okay. It's sort of lighthearted and it's good and so on, but... um, it's certainly not the most important photograph to me. I mean, not by a long shot. There's another shot that I saw that I absolutely love. You have a shot of Pope Benedict nodding off during mass at, uh, on the granaries in Floriana. It's a brilliant shot that tells <laughs> a thousand words, but it's not very flattering for him. So how do you decide or do you have to decide on what image to take and what not to take? Is there ever a point where you say, actually, you know, that maybe isn't appropriate and that's going to offend someone? Because I'm sure he wasn't happy. I'm, I'm quite sure he wasn't too bothered if he even knew about it, to be honest. It's probably some other people were uh, within the sort of Vatican Communications Department. But, you know, it happened and, you know, it was a public mass and he did nod off. I mean, it's, um, you know, I just thought it was a cool moment and I shot it. There's no sort of... Uh, ulterior motive but you know we have to keep in mind you know this is a very very elderly gentleman and it was his first morning in Malta and we know he had a bad night night before yeah it happens to all of us um but what's great about that picture is not necessarily that the pope is is nodding off it's the two guys guys on the other side and when I looked at it and I took a good time to look at it (laughs) I'm like oh my gosh you could just imagine the thoughts that were passing through their minds because it's right there on their faces yeah and also one of them is tapping his hand to try to um, wake him up as well I mean I I photographed Pope Benedict uh, extensively you know when I I spent quite a bit of time early on in his papacy of working in Rome as well and I used to go to the Vatican twice a week. He was a great subject for photography, I've got to say. He used to love playing the crowds. He used to love interacting and sort of joking around with them and so on. And he just made great photos. I mean, one thing he was known for is, um, you know, this Pope loved hats. And I remember there was one time it was um, inside Salanovi, I think they call it in Italian, if I remember correctly. And anyhow, photographers are sort of positioned on a balcony overlooking where the Pope sort of sits. And he's at the top of this sort of staircase. And then you've got all the people down below. And at the end of his Wednesday um, sermon, he would sort of go down the stairs and sort of interact with people down there. There were a bunch of Italian civil protection officers, including some pilots, helicopter pilots. And one of them gave, them, gave the Pope his f- flying helmet and he put it on. It, was, it would have been a perfect shot if there wasn't his head of security precisely standing in front of him. No. So all I can see is the back of his head of security's head <laughs> and the rim of the helmet around him. It was like perfectly placed. And it's not like you can shift position because you, like, you know, 20 photographers lined up on that balcony all with your kind of you know, big 
some white lenses. And I swore so much. <laughs> so this is, a, you know, you're inside the Vatican and I was cursing and, you know, I, I knew the name of this head of security because we'd come across him before and I was, there's no way he heard me, of course. The other photographers did, you know, they were quite like... Did anyone get the picture though? Everyone was in the same position? Um, I know afterwards it was released as a Vatican handout. You know, you've got the post photographer who'll be down there on the ground with him and she got a wide angle shot of it. <laughs> it would have been the ultimate sort of Pope shot, you know, to get him, you know, putting on that helmet. I love your story about the Pope. It's fantastic. Let's talk about a series of images, the first photo I ever yep. took of my daughter and the last. It's quite a change of mood. I saw that you had won an award for this and then I looked up the images on the Reuters site, Wider Image, and I have to be honest, uh, Darren, I cried. Not just because of the images or the account that is with it, but because I have met your daughter at an event some three or four years ago and I recognised her immediately. Firstly, was Rebecca or Bex aware of the series of images that you were taking? Yes, of course. Of course she was. How did she feel about it? She was fine with it. It's, um, we know, we need to go back a bit, I think. Um, you know, the, the story you mentioned, the first photo I ever took and the last, um, was actually the second story in a series of two. Bex was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma, a very aggressive bone cancer in October 2019. I remember I was about to head off to Lebanon on assignment and obviously I cancelled everything and stopped travelling altogether after that. You know, for the first uh, five months of Beck's treatment, four and a half months, I wasn't working very much but I would go, I would go to see her in the hospital every day and my wife Marisa would actually spend the night there with her. But Bex also used to come home in between her chemo cycles. If she was well enough She'd come home for a few days and then go back in. You know, I, I always, I really, really believed, um, I was convinced that although the mortality rate is pretty high within her age group, you know, she would be one of those 30% that's going to make it. I was always 100% convinced of that. Once COVID sort of crept in over here and, you know, the pandemic struck us in, in March, although it had been sort of in other parts of you have bit before that it didn't quite hit us till mid-march i remember one sunday afternoon i was uh, photographing migrants in fact who were landing on water they'd been rescued by the afm marisa called me marisa's my wife um, she called me in a panic saying they're locking down the hospital we're going to get stuck in here if you don't come to see bex now you're not going to see her till god knows when I, I dropped what i was doing rushed home which luckily is quite close to hospital so dropped off my camera gear and rushed to the hospital and spent the rest of the day there with Bex, whilst Marisa went home to pack some bags, um, anticipating a longer stay. When I left the hospital that night, it, I stayed till about 10 or 11 o'clock, but when I left that night, that was the last time I spent any time with her in seven or eight weeks, because they were locked in there, and I was pretty much locked at home. I sort of, although we didn't have an official lockdown here in Malta, especially back then, I pretty much went into like total sort of isolation, extreme paranoia about everything. You know, I was one of these guys who would sort of like disinfect all my groceries and try to get them delivered, and have a sort of a dirty area sort of in the doorway where I could sort of clean and disinfect my shoes before I step inside. Taking the dog out for a walk was a real nightmare because 
you know, we didn't know much about COVID then, so you didn't know if it was something which could be sort of the virus could be lying there in the street and the dog could pick it up on his paws and bring it into his house. You know, there was all this. Now we know irrational fear about it all. But Darren, that surprises me because of your encounter with migrants and being in tsunami situations. Was that that you or is that because of what was happening with Bex? I think it was a bit of both. Also, you know, keep in mind that when I'm sort of working on the migrant rescue ships or or if I'm in a conflict zone or whatever, we're taking all the necessary precautions. We're wearing safety gear and so on. In this case, um, you know, the enemy was all around us. We didn't know if it's in the air, if it's on the sort of door handle to the apartment block. If you're going to the sort of to the supermarket and there's other people around, um, some people wear masks, some people don't. You don't know if it's safe to pick something off the supermarket shelf. It was crazy every time. You know, that was sort of compounded with the, with the stress of having sort of Bex, you know, very seriously ill in hospital and, and I can't be there for her. So that, that was really, really tough. It was very tough for them as well. I mean, yes, we, you know, we talk every day on FaceTime or whatever, but it's really not the same as having that interaction together because Bex and I used to do a lot of fun stuff together, even when she was in hospital. Uh, we shared a lot. And suddenly we couldn't do any of that anymore. One day, so, you know, my editor sent me, my editors in London sent me a message saying, like, you know, you got time for a Teams chat? And I said, yeah, let's have a chat. And, you know, it's worth mentioning they were being very, very supportive of all of us, you know, throughout this um, crisis with Bex. And, you know, they wanted to see how I was doing, making sure I'm kind of, you know, keeping my wits about me and so on. And one of them suggested, like, why don't you, you know, this might be a good way of coping as well, and it could be an in- interesting story. Why don't you document your isolation at home, okay? You've got a very sort of different angle from everybody else because you self-isolating to protect yourself, but also to protect your daughter who's in hospital. And if they like, you can ask Marisa and Bex to also document their isolation, you know, using their iPhones, I mentioned it to them, and both Bex and Mars were very enthusiastic about it. They said, yes, absolutely, let's do this. But I would set up a camera in a corner to take a photo every 30 seconds, for example, and I would then just carry on doing my thing. It could be I'm eating, I'm cooking, I'm gardening, I'm washing the floor, I'm sleeping. And I started building up a body of work like this. After about seven weeks of that, Um, the hospital authorities have said we can now start to switch places. So I was going to be allowed to go into hospital to stay with Bex and Marisa would have come home. So I I then had to do uh, two weeks of very strict quarantine at home. Once I was there, the emphasis of the photo documentary changed because suddenly I had access inside the hospital. Uh, We naturally got permission from the hospital authorities. You know, we took it right to the very, very top. They imposed a number of conditions which, uh, which were very reasonable. I mean, Bex had been, since before the pandemic, she understood firsthand the power of the media because Bex loved school and she was getting very frustrated that, that she was missing out on school so much. And she was pleading for some form of online education for sick students. Remember, this, this was before the pandemic. Uh, The media picked it up, and then the the president of Malta picked it up, and the minister of education picked it up. And shortly afterwards, once the pandemic struck, the momentum was already there 
to have some form of online schooling. So Bex was one of the people who actually kick-started this because before the pandemic, there was a lot of resistance. It was perhaps one of the only silver linings for Bex of the pandemic. Once everybody suddenly needed online schooling, she could effectively go back to school. And she started attending lessons whenever she felt up to it. And uh, by July, sort of Bex had uh, finished her chemotherapy and her radiotherapy. And she was well enough to go home. And to me, you know, it was fantastic. I felt at that time, okay, we've, we've got a great story. We've got some great pictures, some of which were taken by Bex, some were taken by Mars. I obviously did the bulk of them. But it looks like a st it's a very hopeful, positive story. I set about sort of you know, putting it together, doing the final edits. Um, together with my editors in London, we selected the pictures. Uh, they got a very good writer on board to, to go through my sort of journal and try to sort of, you know, condense it into a story. And we did that. And Bex felt really empowered by this. At the beginning of September, um, she started feeling a bit unwell again. You know, we didn't think it was anything too serious. I mean, we never imagined it was the, uh, the cancer beginning to, to come back. But they said, you know, let's bring her back into hospital. And she left home on the 27th of September. I never imagined that was the last time she was going to be home. Not in a million years would I have dreamt that that was the last time she was seeing her bedroom, the last time she was seeing the dog, the cats, and so on. The original story, the very hopeful story, was published the following day. You know, whilst Bex was still at home and would finalise the story and uh, submitted it, and in those couple of weeks, whilst it was being edited and waiting for publication, uh, Bex and I agreed we would continue to tell the story. I imagined it was going to be telling the story of a, a long, slow road to recovery. I was wrong. No, I never imagined I'd be wrapping up the story quite so soon, uh, just a few months later. But anyhow, once we were in the hospital, so, you know, we carried on with it and she was fully aware of it. She, you know, she had no problems with it. It was very important to me to always respect her dignity and so on. So there are times when obviously I'm not going to take photos, um, particularly sort of when she got really, really bad uh, towards, uh, towards the end in the final weeks. You and Bex had agreed to continue, mm -hmm. even when your story took a different route what was the objective and the aim of this story that you agreed? You as a father, mm. but also you as a photographer, because there are two parts, there are two aspects yeah. to this story. Yeah. You can see in the photographs you are a father, but you can also yeah. see that you are a photojournalist. I'm sure it's a very sort of psychologically complex issue. I mean, one reason why I felt I needed to do it was it was a coping mechanism for me, but that's just speaking about how I felt about it. You as a father. Me as a father. I also felt, in a way, a, this was a great opportunity to help other people. In my work, I've, you know, we spoke about a lot of distressing situations which I have photographed. Um, you know, we mentioned a small fraction of the things which I've witnessed. I felt that if I st stopped myself from doing this, wouldn't that be hypocritical of me? Because I don't want to show my pain, my suffering, that of my families when, when I've been perfectly fine with doing it you know, with total strangers. But that goes right the way back to the very first image that we spoke about. Yeah. And that's exactly the same narrative. You Absolutely. are bringing an understanding to people who cannot be in that situation. I mean, th that, is the, that is the role, that is the, the duty, the vocation of being a photojournalist. It's a, hell of a, it's a huge privilege to be able to do that, to um, sometimes you know, 
be on the sidelines of history and witness history in the making, but it's a huge responsibility as well. But let's bring that full circle once okay. again, because you took that photograph of the migrant as that migrant looked like they were drowning. Yeah. The last photograph that you take is of your wife crying over Bex just moments after she's died. Yeah. And at that point, you're taking a photograph of something which I can only imagine was deeply, deeply distressing. Did you take that photograph as a photojournalist or as a father? I don't think you can really separate the two. But uh, I think in this particular story, it's very hard to really dif differentiate between the two. It's, it was very, very hard to do, but I'm more convinced than ever that I did the right thing and that Bex would be sort of happy about it. And when we see the response to the second story, which was published worldwide, I mean, the fact that it was published in so many uh, media outlets around the world, the amount of uh, messages, you know, via social media or emails, which I received, is astounding and they were all so positive did that help ease the pain it did um there were some there were a lot of messages which were very hard to read because they were from people who are going through similar experiences themselves or have been through similar experiences that is such that an was emotional hard. weight that that was a huge emotional weight and i did sort of ask myself should i be taking all this on should i be reading these messages should i stop reading them it was the, on the Reuters of social media feeds. It got the most interactions this year. You know, the figures are public. Now, let's talk about the award for a second because you mentioned something right at the beginning of the interview that I was unaware of, that Yanis Barakas was actually a friend of yours who yeah. also has passed away. So to win that award, the International Photojournalism Award, must have been twice as emotional. Definitely. Now, Yanis is not a guy who I knew well. You know, I only met him like three or four times, but we often spoke um, via emails because he worked a lot on migration as well. And the reason he used to come to Malta was to get onto migrant rescue ships himself. And that is where we sort of usually met. He was Reuters fireman. You know, whenever there was a really hairy, dangerous situation, he was the guy who went into it. He had nine lives. And, you know, every conflict you can think of, he was there in the thick of it. And it, But he was a great guy. Um, he had a great sense of humanity, of right and wrong. He won a Pulitzer for his work on the migration in the Aegean. Yeah, I respected him so much. He was such an inspiration. I remember the last time we met, we were having a sort of a coffee down on the Vittoriosa waterfront in one of the cafe restaurants over there. Uh, he was about to go off to, out to sea on, um, with one of the migrant rescue NGOs. And, you know, we were talking about, sort of, you know, plans for the future, you know, how, what we're thinking of c covering. This was a very short while before he, he realized he had cancer himself. And we were both talking glowingly about our daughters, who were both named Rebecca. His daughter is Rebecca. She's slightly younger than my Rebecca. Yeah, a few months later, um, I remember so I went to Brussels uh, for, I was nominated for an award in Brussels. It was the Mediterranean Journalism Award. And I looked at who the other nominees were the day before, and I saw he was on the nominee list as well. And I said, like, gosh, I've come up against Giannis. Like, you know, it's his. I don't stand a chance, obviously. And I asked the organizers, you know, when does Giannis get here? And they told me he's not coming because he's not well. But I thought, you know, he's not well. Maybe he's got the flu or something. It was the middle of winter. I was only a couple of days later when um, I was talking to my editor in London, 
And I told him, like, you know, Yanis couldn't come. And he said, yeah, you know, Yanis, you know, he's got cancer. And, uh, you know, that was quite a shock. And, you know, Yanis uh, passed away in uh, 2019. Very shortly after he died, Athens Photo World, which is a big, you know, big global festival, decided that uh, they would be setting up this awards on an annual basis. To win the third edition of it, it's an honour beyond compare. You know, winning it for the story and, you know, seeing the kind of the links with Yanis's own story as well and makes it even more sort of poignant, I think. Yeah, I'd like to think uh, he'd be happy about it and that, um, you know, he's had a bit of a chat with Bex about it as well, I would, I would like to think. I mean, this is what I tell myself. I mean, there's no way of knowing, of course, but um, this, is, this is what I say to myself. I think that's the most incredible thought and hearing that part of the story about the the background behind the award is even more powerful. Absolutely. Darren, I want to thank you for being so honest and so upfront in what must be a very difficult subject to talk about. And I, I also want to thank you for having that power in your photographs, not just of, of Bex, but also the other photographs that you've taken, to changing people's perceptions and changing how people see the world. It's an incredible gift. And I want to say thank you for doing that and thank you for being with me on the interviewer. I wish you all the very best and I love the thought that Yanis is there talking with Bex, both of them very, very proud of you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.